Okay, we're still in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning chapter 4. We've completed, last week, we completed the first half, which we have noted on several occasions, that half of of Ephesians is a a doctrinal teaching uh, portion, whereas from chapter 4 on is the practical application of the things Paul has been talking about and dealing with. So... In chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling, the vocation, the calling. It's the word for calling. Wherewith you're called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Prior to this time, Paul had, at the beginning in chapter 3, had made reference to himself as a prisoner of the Lord. So this is the second time he's done that, uh, implying, I suppose, as far as I can understand, that I'm, I'm all, I'm, I'm pinned up. I can't go anywhere. Can't hardly get out to see daylight in the kind of prison that he was in. And here you are, and I'm, I'm writing to you believers at Ephesus, to practice what I've been trying to teach you and tell you about those who belong to Christ and those who have received him. The longer you study and the longer you look at the Gospels and the longer you look at the Gospel message and that which the disciples proclaimed along with the Lord Jesus, John the Baptist, and those who came announcing the kingdom the more you see with certainty this singularity of their message. And it gets honed down. It gets refined as time goes on, as they continue this message. And Paul, having laid out to the Ephesians in what we said was probably one of the loftiest, highest, and most elegant epistles as far as laying out what the Christian is in Christ and his place, his position, as a result of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, who was raised from the dead, seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father, and so, he says, you and I, raised together with him, for by grace are you saved and made to sit together with him in the heavenlies. It is so significant of what we have in Christ. And then to turn right around and for Paul then to begin to tell us, now now that you know what you have, here's how you ought to be living in light of that, and in view of that. 
The first thing he tells us in verse 1 is to walk worthy of the vocation. Now, the King James uses the word vocation. Uh, it, it's the Greek word for calling. And if you, you could read it, you walk worthy of the calling wherewith you're called. And then, if you look in verse... Uh, Oh, verse, uh, where is he? Verse 4. He says, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. So the matter of a, a call, a calling, is, is important in what Paul is trying to teach us here. Back in chapter 2, and even before that, but it's particularly in chapter 2, you remember that in verses 11 to 22, there was a lengthy section there that, that uh, Paul dealt with in laying out the fact that believers, Jew and Gentile, are one in the body of Christ. In other words, in Christ, they have become one new man. And also, in chapter 3, that they are members of the same body. As a matter of fact, if you look at, over at chapter 3 and verse 6, he says there that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Now, this message is one that had been entrusted to Paul. It was a stewardship of his that God had given him, a stewardship responsibility. And of course, I don't think that any of us would say that he failed. As a matter of fact, he was a complete success at it. Such a complete success that at the end of his ministry, and as the time drew near for him to be executed, he said, I've, I've completed my course. And I know that there's a crown laid up and waiting for me. And I think that can be true of you and I that we can know if we have labored diligently and been faithful to the kind of calling that Paul is talking about here. Because we all have a calling, every single one of us. And this calling, he says, wherewith you're called is to be conditioned by walking worthy of it. Now, we, we have all kinds of things in the world, that we expect people to be worthy of their state in life or their station in life, as we might say it. I mean, you might be a, you could be a sales clerk in a, in a store. You could be an office manager. You could be a doctor. You could be a, a sports figure. And 
We all have certain expectations about how those people should act and live in accordance with the station they have in life or the position or their calling. And Paul is laying out no less expectation for us as believers, as those who belong to Christ, than anybody else in the world would have except that it's a lot higher and a lot deeper and a lot more meaningful because it has such a much, much greater outcome. So in conjunction with that then, in this, he tells us then in verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, what this walking worthy is to mean and its basis He says there in verse 2, we are to walk with all lowliness and meekness. Now, I suppose that probably most of us have been over these kinds of words many, many times, and they're no surprise to us, and so they only bear repeating in as much as we all need to be reminded from time to time what we need to be as a Christian and how we need to act. One of the things that I've come across recently and and just really has affected me is this matter of lowliness or humility. And this one prime feature above, seemingly at least, I'm going to say that that way for now, seemingly above all others, but it's one that's repeated over and over, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as a key feature that God is looking for in those whom he wishes to elevate to high positions of responsibility and authority. And it's humility. He sought for it in kings when he would place kings on their thrones. Hannah, in her prayer, you remember, spoke of the matter of taking that which is very low at the bottom of the dunghill and God's delight in raising such a one up to the very heights. And in concord with that, meekness. Meekness to me has always been very, very difficult to describe and understand except you know them, you know somebody when you meet them. You don't really have a lot of trouble you know, figuring out who the meek people are. One of the definitions that I heard many, many years ago was meekness was power or strength under control. And I've always liked that. Because you're, you can't be, I don't know that you can be naturally meek. It's a person who has the ability to take their power or their strength and manage it and manage it well and keep it under control. So lowliness and meekness, that's one part of the walk that Paul describes as being worthy 
of our calling. The second thing he mentions there is with long-suffering. Now, of course, long-suffering, we've heard as being literally long-tempered. Well, that's a pretty good way to put that too. Long-suffering. The ability to maintain or keep something on a long-term basis. And it kind of goes in conjunction with forbearing one another uh, also. In that, a person who is long-suffering and a person who is forbearing is a person who can endure, who is patient, who can put up with it. We just say, you know, they're able to put up with a lot. They're able to handle things on a recurring basis that would maybe drive some other person crazy and cause them to react in a way they shouldn't be reacting. And probably we've all been there. (laughs) But we're talking about the practice of it. We're talking about the characterization of those who are walking worthy of their calling. And you'll notice he says there... um, In in verse 1, he says, wherewith ye are called. You know, these believers in Ephesus, this is one indication who he's writing to, because they had been called. He wasn't writing to someone with the potential and saying, now, if you do happen to want to receive Christ, you know, this is what we expect of you. No, he's writing to people who already know this to be the case. Um, in Philippians 1.27, he tells the, the, the believers at Philippi, he says, only let your conversation be as it becometh Christ. Now, the word conversation is not the same thing. It's not uh, to walking worthy. But it's talking about letting your manner of life, and your way of living, which is the same thing, be as it becometh Christ, to reflect him. Then over in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, he says there that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. And finally, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 12, he says that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. So this calling that he has called us to, his kingdom and his glory, is demanding of certain kinds of conduct on our part. Humility and meekness, being extremely patient and long-suffering with people, And, of course, all of this is within the context of the members of the body of Christ. And our head, the Lord Jesus, who exemplified these things to the nth degree, and if he did that, then we as members of his body are to reflect what the head did or how he lived so that there is unity. And that's where Paul is heading in this passage. In verse 3, endeavoring, being diligent, being eager to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
Now, the very fact that he says, be eager to keep, means that it could be lost. And we've made reference on more than one occasion already since we've been in Ephesians that if you go to the book of Revelation and you look at the study of the seven churches there and the very first one being the church of Ephesus and the one thing that John mentioned with regard to them, of course it was the Lord Jesus uh, through John, said you've left your first love. You've got all these other things here that I recognize, that are well and good and positive and profitable, but you've left your first love. So my point is, is that it's possible to not keep the unity of the Spirit. And it's possible within the body of Christ for there not to be peace. Well, again, you go, duh. Okay, church history tells us that. I've been through some church fights myself. I know what you're talking about. Paul's right. It happens. But it's not the way it should be in the church that has covenanted themselves together knowing that their calling is of the most supreme and highest that God could have ever designed for man, and he did, because Genesis 1 tells us that's exactly what he did. In making him to have dominion over the affairs of the earth. And that he has called us to this coming kingdom, this coming glory in which his son, the Lord Jesus, will come to rule the earth and will call forth those who have manifested these things and walk in obedience to share in that future glory. When he tells us that in Romans 8, we we were joint heirs, we're co-heirs with Christ. We've been made to sit together with him in heavenly places. And we will do so, he says, if we suffer with him. Well, That was one of the reasons I wanted to share this little thing here. Just to tell you that, you know, we read a lot about Christian suffering in the world. But we sure know very, very little about it here. But I think our day's coming. And if we we want to be participants in this coming rule, it sure is a lot of fun to talk about it and preach about it and teach about it when you don't have a sword hanging over your neck, being marched down by the ocean, you know, knowing your life is about to come to an end. And little children who are believers, and their lives are being snuffed out right and left as we speak today because of their faith. And you know what? When I read about that in the news, the first thing that entered my mind, the first thing that entered my mind was said, well, they have an automatic promotion to rule and reign with Christ. Because John said he saw under the altar those who had been beheaded for the Lord Jesus Christ, and they shall reign with him for a thousand 
years. That's their portion. Would we look forward to that? Hey, like I said, it's easy, a lot easier to talk about it than it is to see it come true in your own life. But that's why it's so important. That's why it is so important for the body of Christ, the assembly of believers who covenant together and say, this is what we are and we are going to unite ourselves together and we are going to hang together. If I can use that term, that's a kind of a hood term, I guess, isn't it? Or something. I don't know what we, but we, and I don't mean literally hang, but that may, even though that may be that, but I mean, we live and die together. But I can tell you right now, there is many a church in this town and in this country and around the rest of the world that when such persecution comes, the sheep are going to scatter like you wouldn't believe because they have no firmness of foundation and no understanding of what Paul has just taught us in those first three chapters and why he is making this appeal for us about having a worthy walk. It is absolutely essential. Well, he goes on then to say, endeavoring to keep, he says, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. You got, so you got this one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There, there really here is a, is a uniqueness to this oneness of, unity, of being united in our faith that Paul is trying to impress upon us that, that in the coming passage from chapter uh, verse 7 down through verse 16, is going to tell us how that needs to be worked out in the context of the local church. When, when, when the believers come together and meet together. This is what should mark us, as it were, as Christians. Of course, we're told in another place, in John's Gospel, that Jesus told his disciples, he said, They're going to know, by the way, and I I think they were sort of getting along to the idea that something big was coming up, and this this was said in the context of he he was on his way to the cross. I mean, he's just like a day or two away, hours before he was executed on the cross. And so you have all that background in view. And he says, you know, they're going to know you're my disciples if you have love one to another. Well, back in verse 2, he said, forbearing one another in love. In love. And we saw earlier that faith and love were the key hallmarks 
in these first three chapters that Paul was speaking of. And he mentions it also to the church at Colossae, that faith and love were the foundation. Faith having more specific, I'll get it out, specific reference to that which they believed, that would call forth their doctrine, and then love their practice, how they carried it out. They go together, and you cannot have one without the other. We cannot sit back smugly with knowing our doctrine, and then they're thinking that everything else is going to flow out of there, and everything's just going to be okay. It just cannot happen. And so when he says this, one, 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 Paul is telling us that anything that goes outside of this oneness is a departure from the faith. There is, he says, one body. It's not two bodies of Christ. There is one. All saints are members of that body. They can be highbrow and lowbrow. They can be members of different races. They can be wealthy. They can be poor. They can be, have a high status in society and, or a low or whatever other category the world can dream up. They're, there's, they're all members of that one body. I think that's one of the uniquenesses uh, of the early church that I have discovered is, well, you remember when we preached through the series on slavery, that the master of the house could be members of the church with his own slaves and had them right there in church with him. And even Paul, as we look at at the letter uh, of Philemon, when he wrote to Philemon concerning his slave Onesimus, he said to re- his, he, you know, he was a runaway. He said, receive him back as a brother. He's valuable to you, not just as a slave, but as a brother. And so we need to receive everybody, everybody who names the name of Christ and makes the same claim of commitment to the Lordship of Christ needs to be received on an equal plane in the body of Christ as a brother or a sister. One spirit. You know, if you look closely at this passage, you've got a clear teaching of the Trinity here. Because this is not a small s spirit. He's not talking about man's spirit. That, I mean, that would get you nowhere if you were talking about living in, in unity and oneness. You're doomed to failure. It's the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 5, you have one Lord. That's Jesus Christ. And then in verse 6, you have one God and Father of all. That's the Father. So every portion of God's being and that which is included in association with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, which is the body, 
and faith and the one baptism creates for us an aspect of unity in in the assembly of, of believers. And by the way, one baptism there, if you were to literally translate that, it's one immersion. There's not two or three. There is one baptism that is effectual. And that is a baptism that follows a faith, a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that baptism markedly sets you apart publicly as one who says, I am claiming Jesus Christ. I am identifying with him. The gospel that he proclaimed. And so you have, you have all of these things here in this passage declaring to us the unity that is to exist in this one body and amongst this, these, uh, well, I don't want to say it that way, amongst the one new man in Christ who are members of the body. And then finally, finally he tells them concerning God that he is above all, through all, and in you all. Well, what can we say there? Um, I think simply this, that God is above. Paul's telling us that, and of course, again, it helps us to go back and, and consider the world of the New Testament and the culture of the day and the multiplicity of gods that existed in all these different areas. In Ephesus, we know that the prime Goddess there was the goddess Diana, excuse me, Diana or Artemis. And Paul is trying to tell us that God is not bound up in such things that are associated with the earth. He is above all. And furthermore, he's not in the universe, and he's not in the material creation. But he's above it, and he's separate from it, and apart from it. One God and Father above all. And then secondly, he says, though, he's through all. And it's the familiar word, dia, that's often translated through. Through in the sense that he is everywhere present in his creation, but he's not in the creation. And there's a difference. And we looked our, we did a, a brief study some weeks ago on our Greek prepositions. And we noted that there is a difference between the word in and the word through. And God is not in the creation. But he can be through the creation. In other words, as the psalmist said in Psalm 139, there isn't any place I can go, but God, you are there. And we all know that. We understand that. And then lastly, he says, and in you all. He is in you all. 
as believers, we saw that they were as being members of the body. He said over there in chapter 2, um, verse, um, well, beginning with verse 19, he says, Therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation or a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. We are being built into a temple to be God's dwelling place. And it is his desire to come and dwell in the midst of an assembly of believers just like this. And we can expect him to if we're living in the way that Paul describes here. And that is walking worthy of our calling. God would take great delight to show up here on a Sunday morning when the believers of this church who've covenanted together under the gospel to come and worship here, as Jerry says almost every Sunday morning, thank you for coming and joining us in worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It would delight him to show up and show his presence here amongst us. I would not expect to find him in some highbrow church. Not that it would not be possible. But that's not the kind of thing he delights in. He delights in the low and the humble, the meek, the poor, the base things of the earth. That's what God associates with. You know, I was years ago, I was when we were in Nassau, and I was asked to teach a Sunday school class, and I guess it must have been around Christmas time, because I remember teaching about um, the birth of Christ, and I made some comment like this. Um, maybe Kim could appreciate this, because I, I, I made a comment. I said, you know, if Jesus were to come and be born here in Nassau, would he be born out at Lyford Key? Or do you think he would be born over in the grove? <laughs> well, you can pretty much guess. Lyford Key is out west of the, on the island. That's where the rich people live. Now, I mean, the rich live. <laughs> the grove, or more formally says, the co- coconut grove. But if you know your way around, you don't say coconut grove. You say the grove. And when I said that, I didn't, and I just did it. I just said it, and, and they all went, ah, ah, you're like, you're one of us. You're one of us. <laughs> but that's, that's where he would, have been, he would have chosen. He didn't choose some high 
place. He didn't choose like he could have been born somewhere up in the temple area. Some exalted place. But it was a lowly manger. And that's by design. That's on purpose. So let's take to heart what Paul is going to teach us here in the rest of this section here, down through verse 16 especially, when we come to that next week, Lord willing, and see how this plays it out itself out in the, in the context of the local church and what that means to you and I when we interact with one another in the body. Let's pray. Father, it is with pure joy and the delight of our hearts that we bow before you and lift our hearts in thanksgiving and praise for the things that you have said are ours in Christ and have told us what will be ours when we act in accord and obedience to those things that you've taught us here in the last half of this letter. And we have much to learn, Father, and we have much to uh, room for growth. And we just pray, Father, that you would indeed feel free to visit with us, to move by the means of your Holy Spirit upon our hearts today, and that we might be obedient believers walking in a manner that is fully acceptable to you. And we'll be careful and give all the thanks and praise unto you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.